Good morning. Matthew writes, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless his word to our hearts and understanding this morning. Morning, Bethel. If um, you are new with us this morning, or if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, like Al just said, we are in the middle of a sermon series. It's a four-part sermon series called Love Your Literal 
neighbor. So our typical practice here at Bethel is to preach through the Bible book by book, but every so often we like to take a break and focus on specific topics the Bible addresses. And so this time we're thinking about biblical hospitality. What is it? Why is it important? And how do we live it out among our literal neighbors, among the people who actually live near us in our neighborhoods. One of the books that we're recommending in this series is this. It's called The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. We have this for sale at the desk right out in the foyer. I think we only have a couple of copies left. So if you'd like to buy one, just go to the desk in the foyer after the service. And if we run out, uh, let us know and we'd be happy to order a copy for you. But in that book, uh, Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements, they define biblical hospitality like this. Biblical hospitality is the polar opposite of cultural trends to separate and isolate. It rejects the notion that life is best spent fulfilling our own self-centered desires, cordoned off from others in the private fortresses we call homes. Biblical hospitality chooses to engage rather than unplug, open rather than close, initiate rather than sit idly. At its core, the practice of biblical hospitality is obeying the command in Romans 15:7 to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It's receiving others into our lives, into relationship, and yes, even into our homes. It welcomes Christians as a way to walk in the truth that we've been made family through the gospel and it welcomes non-Christians in an attempt to model and extend the gracious invitation we've received from God and Christ. Leveraging our personal refuges for this mission of welcoming others may feel like a great cost, but it is a cost that is repaid with an abundance of superior joys. Loneliness is traded for community, comfort is surrendered for an eternal purpose, and detached apathy is left behind for a mission meaningful enough to give your life to. That is really good. I love that. Doesn't that sound like something that you want to be a part of? I hope so. And that's the kind of genuine, world-changing, biblical hospitality that we are focusing on in this series. So two weeks ago, Pastor Chris kicked us off by focusing on the hospitality of God. We were once God's enemies, separated from Christ. We were strangers, rebelling against God, running away from Him. But God, who is rich in mercy and He's a big spender, He graciously brought us near, He welcomed us in, and He gave us a seat at His table. That's true for everybody who's trusting Jesus. And Bethel, that is true for us. Through Jesus, God has hospitably welcomed us into His family. We're children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And God calls us to show the same hospitality He's extended to us, to each other. But it's not only that. God calls us to extend that hospitality to those outside of the family too. And so last week, in part two of the series, Pastor Chris looked at the Lord's command to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And Jesus' teaching that Christians are salt and light in the world in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And the point of his sermon was this. You live where you live, one, to love your neighbors, and two, to bless and preserve and heal and dispel darkness and ultimately to glorify God. And now this morning, we are going to revisit Matthew 22. We're going to revisit the Lord's command to love God and neighbor. That text is referred to as the great commandment. And we're going to think about its relationship to the text that's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Lord's command to make disciples of all nations. So to put it another way, this morning, we're going to wrestle with this question. Does true biblical hospitality involve evangelism and discipleship? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. And if it does involve evangelism and discipleship, how do we actually start to live that out in our neighborhoods? What does that look like? And so we're going to work through this in two sections. One, both and calling. So there we're going to look at the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. And two, what's next? There we're going to get really practical and consider several ways that we can respond to God's Word and seek to begin to live this out. So let's look first at point one, both and calling. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22, 37 to 40. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 828. So Matthew 22, 37 to 40. It's page 828 in the Pew Bible. Let's actually start reading at verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, that's Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So how does Jesus summarize what the law and the prophets, what the Old Testament demands of us? One, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments go hand in hand. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor just as you cannot truly love your neighbor in the way that God requires and at the same time hate God. To put it positively, genuine love for God results in genuine love for neighbor. And genuine love for neighbor reflects genuine love for God. And this is what God demands in all spheres of life, our neighborhoods included. As Chris pointed out last Sunday, you live in your neighborhood and I live in mine to love our neighbors. 
And that's something that we can practice, as Chris pointed out, in ordinary ways and sometimes in difficult ways. One ordinary way of loving your neighbor and practicing biblical hospitality can be simply introducing yourself to your neighbors, to those you don't know when you see them. So in this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, and heads up, I'm going to quote a lot from this today. So just so you know that, and also you should buy this. It's really good. So in, in this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Brandon Clements, he describes how he lives that out. He calls it the always rule. He says, quote, the always rule means that if you see a neighbor you don't know, pause what you're doing and meet them. Always. If you're walking to the car and are in a hurry, if you're getting groceries out of the car, if you're picking up a package, always. I, Brandon, needed to create this rule to help myself because as mentioned earlier, and this may be um, a, a gracious extension for some of us, because as mentioned earlier, I'm an introvert. Do I ever break the always rule? Of course. I guess that makes it the sometimes rule, but whatever. It seems there is never a perfect time to meet a neighbor I don't know, and they tend to walk by at the worst moments. The point of the always rule is, if that, is that if I don't decide beforehand and a neighbor walks by while I'm trying to get my toddler out of the car, I will almost never choose to stop and go meet them. So I decide in advance in order to take the decision-making out of it. The process for doing this is extremely simple. I walk up to them, I smile, and I say, I don't think I've met you. I'm Brandon, what's your name? That's it. That's how I start every single time. That's pretty simple, right? There are lots of ordinary ways that we can begin doing this with our neighbors. We can have them over to eat dinner, have them over to watch a TV show, have them over to play games. We can take walks outside so we can meet our neighbors. We can attend neighborhood events if they're offered. Maybe even we can shift things that we typically do in the backyard to the front yard so that we'll be more visible to our neighbors and be more likely to meet them. Dustin Willis, who's uh, one half of the, of the duo who wrote this book, he says that he actually moved his grill to the front yard so he could get to know his neighbors better. And the crazy thing is, he says that that's actually worked for him. He says, quote, people see me grilling in my front yard and it's almost as though they can't not come talk to me. They're either drawn by the incredible smell or they just have to meet this weirdo who's grilling on his front lawn. So lots of ordinary ways that we, we can begin to do this, but sometimes Getting to know our neighbors and showing them the love of Jesus is more difficult than that. It requires welcoming those who may not be that receptive to us. It requires loving those who may not be easy to love. So again, in this book, Brandon Clements says that his friend Alan started doing something for his neighbors called Free Coffee Friday. He knew that many of his neighbors wouldn't initially be receptive to that, uh, to an invite into his home, that is. And so he, and this is uh, quoting from the book, he simply provides coffee for his neighbors before they and their kids head off to work or school. 
He pulls out a couple of eight-foot folding tables, plastic chairs, and some decent coffee made in the old classic urns. Neighbors not only come, they love it. People gather around, serve themselves coffee, talk about the week behind them and the weekend that lies ahead. So still not as difficult as it may be, but more difficult than extending an invitation or a welcome to a neighbor you don't know. So either way, whether it's through ordinary means or whether it's through more difficult circumstances, the key here is intentionality. We need to purposely show the love of Jesus to our neighbors. We need to love them as we love ourselves. But here's an important question I think we need to be asking at this point. Does loving your neighbor as yourself, does practicing biblical hospitality involve more than this? Does it involve more than introducing yourself to your neighbors? Does it involve more than having your neighbors over for dinner? Does it involve more than serving coffee to your neighbors? Well, Willis and Clements in this book, they actually answer that for us. They say, clearly the aim of hospitality is more than merely inviting someone into our home, sharing a good meal and a few stories and calling it a night. We are missionaries after all. Paul reminded us we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Our mission as ambassadors of Christ is to share the good news of Jesus' work through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is the true hope for the world. As a result, we can't keep from, the, we can't keep from sharing the gospel with those we love or at least we should not be able to. I think maybe that Spurgeon quote should ring in our ears a little bit. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Where's he getting that? Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is one text. So if you're using the Pew Bible, let's look at that together. Turn with me to page 835. So page 835 in the Pew Bible, this is part of the portion that Al read for us earlier. We'll start at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're called to love God and neighbor. As we've said, those go hand in hand. Genuine love for God leads to genuine love for neighbor, and genuine love for neighbor reflects genuine love for God. We're called to love God and neighbor. And we're called to make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, that's, that's true of all of us. 
So how does all of that work? How does it fit together in the context of biblical hospitality as we're thinking about how to love our literal neighbors? Well, maybe we can put it this way. If we truly love God with every fiber of our being, we will want to tell other people about Him. We will want to see Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, get glory from people all across the globe and in our neighborhoods as they trust Him and as they turn to Him for salvation and as they worship Him. And if we truly love our neighbors, we will want them to discover the treasure that we have found. We will want them to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. We will want them to be saved. We will want them to be forgiven and cleansed. We will want them to be reconciled to God. We will want them to have joy in Christ. We will want them to be brought into the family of God. We will want them to be spared the eternal punishment that awaits everyone who continues in their rebellion against God and rejects Jesus as king. So I can be the most welcoming guy in Deerhurst. That's the neighborhood where I live. I can be the most welcoming guy there, the nicest guy on the block. But if I never share the gospel with my neighbors, if they never turn to Jesus with repentant faith, they will still go to hell and my niceness will not have mattered, at least not for them. So if we truly love God and neighbor, yes, we should be nice, friendly neighbors. We should have the barbecues. We should host the dinners. We should extend the invitations. We should go the extra mile. We should serve those in need. We should spend ourselves for the good of others, but we should not be content with only doing those things. We have to also be intentional to point our neighbors to Jesus and make disciples in our neighborhoods. True biblical hospitality involves both of those things, love for God and neighbor and the great commission. The great commandment and the great commission go hand in hand. This is not an either or dilemma. This is a both and calling. And here's something that's key. These two actually work together. Living out the great commandment, genuinely embodying love for God and love for neighbor naturally creates context for living out the great commission. As we seek to love our neighbors, as we show them kindness, as we welcome them as God has welcomed us, we're not just extending an open hand of fellowship. We're not just giving them a warm cup of coffee. Ultimately, we're seeking to introduce them to our Savior. So practicing biblical hospitality is a wonderful, Christ-like way to live out the great commandment and the great commission. Willis and Clements, they put it like this. <clears throat> we may rightly understand that we are to make disciples as a part of the great commission, which Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. But that all feels very separate from what we do at our houses. 
We think of mission as something that happens outside the four walls of our homes, that if anything, our homes are even a retreat from any Christian mission that we may be involved in, other than training our children to love Jesus, of course. In doing so, however, we waste a powerful and God-ordained means of changing the world. So do you remember Alan, the guy who started the Free Coffee Friday in the neighborhood? Brandon Clement says this about him. He says, quote, in talking with Alan about it, Free Coffee Friday, he said he started with a desire to fill the crack of loneliness in the neighborhood and to create a community environment for parents to talk with their kids and, of course, to caffeinate for the day. Alan said, the coffee's mediocre, but the connections run deep by the end of the school year. Really, it's a first step, a jumping-off spot for relationship and greater depth. Alan knew the step between meeting neighbors and inviting them directly into his home was too much, too quick for many neighbors. So Free Coffee Friday became about creating a scene outside his house with the desire eventually to invite people in. As a result, Alan and his wife now invite these people into their homes for dinner parties. And catch this, one person who showed up most every Friday eventually began doing dinner with them and two years later, she became a Christian. See what happened there? Alan loved his neighbors as himself, and as he did so, he and his wife were afforded the opportunity to invite a woman into their home who eventually came to know Jesus. Great commandment providing context for great commission. Biblical hospitality involving love for God and neighbor and also the intention to make disciples. This is the work that we must be about. Because God has lavishly welcomed us into his family through Christ, we should welcome our neighbors into our homes, into our lives. We should love them as ourselves, do good to them, and point them to Jesus. This is important work, but sometimes it's hard for us. Aaron Minikoff, in an article called Be a Gospel Neighbor, he touches on the importance of this. And he says, quote, I fear if we neglect the hard work of gospel neighboring, any culture of evangelism we build will be far too thin and shallow. Gospel neighboring makes our evangelism thick and deep. Though it's great to share the gospel with whomever you meet, God's word is sufficient to save, it's appropriate to share the gospel in the context of sturdy relationships. Gospel neighboring strives to make such relationships a reality. If pastors are faithful to share the gospel to the gathering on Sunday morning, but are not faithful to make Christ known on their own block, are they really evangelistic? As the quotable Dallas pastor Matt Chandler challenges, if you're a beast in the pulpit but a coward in your neighborhood, something has gone wrong. As the guy who's preaching to you this morning, ouch. But this isn't just a criticism for pastors. All of us need to hear this. If you are willing to engage in a 10-minute conversation with your Uber driver 
but are unwilling to invest in the people God planted in your family, workplace, or neighborhood, are you truly a faithful evangelist? I don't think so. Man, I think we all need to hear that word. We need to be about the practice of living out the great commandment, loving God and neighbor, and the great commission, making disciples of all nations, starting with those next door. So how do we begin to do this? How do we seek to practice biblical hospitality? How do we seek to live out the great commission and the great commandment? And that brings us to our second point, what's next? Here's where we're going to get practical. I think we could list a lot of steps here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit it to six this morning, but I would encourage you again to pick up this book. A lot of what I'm going to say is either quoted from or reflected in this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World. So I would encourage you to pick that up. There's a lot of good ideas there. All right, so six ways that I think we can begin to put feet on this, that we can begin to live this out. One, I think we need to think about and admit the barriers that keep us from practicing biblical hospitality. So in the past two sermons, Pastor Chris has touched on busyness and selfishness as two reasons we fail to do this. So we're not going to go into them here. If you want to hear his comments, I'd encourage you to listen to those last two sermons. You can get both of them on our website. But three more potential barriers, I think, come to mind. One, and I think this one is, is, is natural for many of us. It is for me. It's just a general hesitancy. Maybe as you hear this, as you hear the call to live out the great commandment and the great commission to love your neighbors and show them biblical hospitality with the goal of seeing them know Jesus, maybe as you hear that, you feel a little bit of tension. Does it feel disingenuous to you to show love and kindness to your neighbors when you know that you have an ultimate goal of seeing them come to know Jesus? I think maybe it can feel that way to us. We don't want to be sneaky about our faith. We don't want to invite neighbors over for dinner and then pull some kind of bait and switch where we're like, now that you're here, let's go in the living room and I'm going to give you a five-minute gospel presentation. Or we don't want to do that. We don't want to appear like we've only gotten to know our neighbors so that we can get them to trust Jesus and then move on, like we're treating them as some sort of project. And if we did, our neighbors are smart. They'll be able to pick up on that. So how do we do this? How do we think about this, living out the Great Commandment and the Great Commission? Well, another book that uh, we've recommended in this series is called The Art of Neighboring. It's by Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon, and they address this tension, I think, in a helpful way. They're actually quoting a different book. They say, we have both been greatly influenced by the book To Transform a City by Eric Swanson and Sam Williams. In their book, the authors use the phrase, ulterior versus ultimate, to describe common motives in building relationships with others. Ulterior means something is intentionally kept concealed. An ulterior motive is usually manipulative. It's when we do or say one thing out in the open, but intend or mean another thing in private. Ultimate means the farthest point of a journey. 
An ultimate goal is an eventual point or a longed-for destination. Examples are when a person begins college hoping to become a physician one day, or when kids start playing basketball with dreams of one day playing in the NBA. The ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. But the ultimate motive is just that, to share the story of Jesus and his impact on our lives. So in other words, if we invite our neighbors into our homes, if we try to welcome them, but we keep Jesus hidden from them and then spring the gospel out on them in some sort of sneaky way, that's an ulterior motive that I think people will pick up on. It's not good. But an ultimate motive, the way that that works itself out is us loving our neighbors with the love of Christ that's living our faith out in the open, us bringing our neighbors into our homes and extending to them the love of Jesus and taking every opportunity naturally to share the gospel with them. Big difference in ulterior versus ultimate. And I think another barrier in the way for us when it comes to biblical hospitality perhaps is impatience, or we might even call it unbelief. We can fail to see the importance of simply loving our neighbors well and with good intentions, awkwardly or offensively even force the gospel into conversations. Like we're not content to invest in them over the long haul. When we have an opportunity, we, again, with good, con good intentions, can try to force the gospel into the conversation rather than extending to them the love of Jesus. So Rosaria Butterfield, she mentions this in her book. Again, we've recommended this as well. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, invest in your neighbors for the long haul, the hundreds of conversations that make up a neighborhood and stop thinking of conversations with neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives. I think that's a good word as well. And again, Willis and Clements here in this book, they hit on this too. They say, our neighbors have great intuition. They know when they are being used. If we rush through a conversation to get to a point we are trying to make, people will know that we don't really care about them. So when it comes to our neighbors, we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust that it's the Lord who changes hearts. It's not us. And we need to lovingly, intentionally invest in our neighbors over the long haul. That doesn't mean don't share the gospel with them, but it does mean you don't have to say everything that you could possibly say in one conversation. I think another reason, another barrier in the way for many of us with biblical hospitality is fear. This can manifest itself in a number of ways. One, I think we can be afraid of what true biblical hospitality will cost us. That's similar to the selfishness dynamic Pastor Chris addressed. So hospitality, as we've said, can be ordinary. You go and you introduce yourself to a neighbor. But hospitality can be costly. You invite others into your home, you seek to invest in them, you ask them good questions, and you may find, as some of these authors mention, that your home becomes a hospital for the hurting, which is part of the intention of biblical hospitality, is it not? 
that we're extending that grace and healing of Jesus to our neighbors. But I think sometimes the idea of our home being a hospital can be scary to us. We know that that's demanding. We know that that's going to take time and effort. Or maybe we fear our actual neighbors. We're afraid of who they are. We're afraid of what they might do. What if they have a mental disorder? What if they have a record? And we let that fear dictate how we engage them. Now, we certainly need to use wisdom and discernment there. We certainly need to protect our loved ones from harm. But that said, let's not let our fear of our neighbors prevent us from sharing Jesus with them. Let's not let our fear of what hospitality may cost us prevent us from extending love to our neighbors. If that's how the Lord treated us, all of us would still be lost. We were rebels and lawbreakers, but the Lord made His way toward us. He sent Jesus to save us from our sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God that that's not how He's treated us. So let's put on that gospel application and allow the Lord and allow the Spirit to move us out toward our neighbors. I think another aspect of fear is that we're afraid of what our neighbors might think of us if we decide to take that next step and share Jesus with them. How's that going to affect our relationship? Are they going to think I'm a weirdo? Is word going to spread around the neighborhood? Here's where we need, again, to put on gospel truth. Willis and Clements, they put it this way in their book. This is so good. Nothing your neighbor thinks about you can ever change the way God views you. And that's important enough to drop any amount of pressure that comes from insecurity when initiating relationships. We really need to believe that. That if we are trusting in Christ, the Lord approves, us, approves of us, the Lord delights in us, we are His, Jesus is ours, our identity in Christ is set and secure, and other people's opinions of us cannot change what God thinks of us. And I think we need to recognize too, again, what these authors point out when it comes to fear. They, they put it this way, they say, yes, as you take the bold step of speaking the good news, you may feel nervous and reluctant for fear that you will be rejected, but understand that the gospel you have is so attractive to the hurting who live right next door to you. It is the good news their souls long for deep down, even if they resist it. The more you share this good news, the more you will discern how hungry people actually are for it. People are way more eager to hear about God's grace than we are to speak it. I think we need to hear that too. We know how good the gospel is, right? We were sinners far from God and He has welcomed us in. That is good news to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And if we fail to extend that good gospel news to our neighbors, we're failing to meet their deepest need for community and acceptance and relationship with God. There's one story in this book 
It's about a guy named Micah and Lori and how they ministered to a couple called Clark and Mallory. And they talk about how at one point, Clark and Mallory are attending a Bible study with them. And they weren't Christians at this point, and they're discussing uh, Revelation. And Micah and Lori had discussed Jesus with them. They hadn't kept Christ hidden, but they're discussing Revelation and Jesus' return. And they say this, the fact that, quote, Mallory had no idea that Jesus was coming back one day. So Mallory had no idea that Jesus was coming back one day and that those who believed in him would experience no more pain and no more tears. She, that's Mallory, said, if all of this is really true and Jesus is really coming back one day, then why don't you talk about this more? We have really good news to share. I think sometimes we allow our fears to get the best of us and we assume the worst and we fail to keep really good news from those who may have ears to hear it. All right, so that was all practical step one. Now, we've got we've to hurry here. So that was admit the barriers in the way of biblical hospitality. Two, I think we need to repent and receive. So we just talked about all of these barriers. Some of them are legit. Some of them may not necessarily involve overt sin patterns in our hearts and lives, but some of them may. So I've failed here. I think we've all have failed here. Maybe we haven't sought our neighbors because of selfishness or busyness. Maybe we haven't pursued our neighbors because of fear. So maybe one of the first things that we need to do here is repent, is go to the Lord and confess and ask Him to forgive us for our sin, forgive us for our selfishness, forgive us for our unbelief, and ask Him to change our hearts. Maybe we need to go to God and say, Father, I don't love you and my neighbors as I should. Will you please forgive me and change my heart? Will you please cause me to rejoice in your hospitality and delight to extend it to others? Will you please make me want to see my neighbors come to know Jesus more than I want to relax and hole up in my house? You might be afraid to pray, pray a prayer like that. Like you might feel like God's going to smack you around if you go to him with that. But I think the opposite is true. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So confessing your fault and humbly admitting your need, I think that is right where God wants you, and I think that is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. So if we have failed to extend biblical hospitality for sinful reasons, let's repent and receive the grace that God offers us. All right, three, pray. So we need to pray prayers of repentance, but we also need to Pray prayers to the Lord, asking Him to change our neighbor's hearts. Ask God to do what only He can do. Ask God to give you opportunities to share the gospel with your neighbors. Two things to help here. One, we have these fridge magnets. This comes from that book, The Art of Neighboring. If you haven't got one, these are at the welcome desk too. I would encourage you to pick one up after the service. Stick this thing on your fridge and use it as a prompt to pray for your neighbors. When you walk by, stop and pray for a neighbor you know who doesn't know Jesus or even neighbors who do. All right, so use that to prompt you to prayer. 
Or maybe make it a habit to prayer walk. Prayer walk around your neighborhood. That might sound weird, but it doesn't have to be. Prayer walk just means that you walk around your neighborhood, and as you do so, you are praying consciously for those who live around you. As far as someone on the outside is concerned, you're just taking a walk around the block. But in reality, what you are doing is you are pleading with the sovereign, all-powerful, omnipotent God to save your neighbors, and He is able to do so. All right, and, and that is a powerful, a powerful weapon. So regardless of what you do to remind yourself, let's pray for our neighbors. Let's keep asking God to intervene. Four, internalize the gospel. I think this is a big one. So Willis and Clements, again, they talk about this, and here's how they describe it. Learn how to speak the gospel naturally in the overflow or in the overall flow of relationship, and your friends and neighbors are much more likely to listen attentively. If they can tell that you love them and believe what you're saying, you've gained credibility and gotten their interest. If you really believe that the gospel is good news, it will show in your life and will be applicable to the real struggles your friends and neighbors mention. Internalize the gospel in such a way that you work its truths into all types of conversations. One quick tool is to check and see if the statements you say still work if you put the words, I have good news for you in front of them. For example, if you know a neighbor is dealing with loneliness, does it work to say, I have good news for you, you really need to get better at making friends if you feel so lonely? No, of course not. However, does it work if you say, I have good news for you. I hate that you feel lonely, and I think God hates that too. Maybe part of the reason we met is because he loves you and wants you to have a new friend. Yep, that's good news. That's a way to insert gospel truth into conversations naturally without a forced or awkward presentation. I think that we all, myself included, need to get better at doing that. We need to labor in that effort. All right, and another recommendation for you. I'm throwing all kinds of resources out today. This is called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I'm going through this right now. I would actually encourage you, take a look at this book once a year. It's very simple, and it's working through the application of the gospel in our personal lives. I think as we do this kind of work, as we put feet on the gospel in our hearts and lives, it's going to enable us to more naturally talk about Jesus to our friends and neighbors in the way that Willis and Clements described there as they gave that example of ministering to their friend or neighbor who's dealing with loneliness. All right, five. We need to seek to move down the line. So something that we've been quoting in this series, The Art of Neighboring, describes it this way. We're seeking to move from stranger to acquaintance to relationship with our neighbors. Or Rosaria Butterfield, she puts it this way. Radical, ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. So in other words, let's be intent to make, take the next step down the line. If we don't know our neighbor, let's see if we can get there with them, strangers, neighbors. If we do know our neighbors, let's be sharing the gospel with them and praying for God to intervene. Stranger, neighbor, family of God. There are lots of ways we can do that. Use that always rule to kick off conversations. Listen well when you talk to neighbors. Ask them good, open-ended questions. Tell your story to neighbors. Be ready to share your testimony of how God's intervened in your life. 
follow up with your neighbors when they've shared things with you that lets them know you care about them. And hopefully we do lots of ways to begin to move down the line. And then lastly here, trust the Lord. In all of this, we need to trust the Lord. So we began this morning with the Great Commission, thinking about the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Don't miss how the Great Commission ends. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Biblical hospitality is not easy. We need the Spirit's help to practice this and to do this well. And as we seek to do that, we need to trust that the Lord is with us, that He can work through us, and that He is doing all of this for His glory, for our good, and the good of our neighbors. All right, let's pray, and then we'll have a short time of discussion. Father, we love you. We are thankful that you have welcomed us into your family, that you've made us a family, and Lord, that you continue to welcome people in, that you are a God of grace and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to extend to others the same kind of welcome you have extended to us that we would be a hospitable people who live out the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love God, and the great commission to make disciples of all nations. We need your help for that, and Lord, we pray that you would give us grace as we seek to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.